to the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come into the last week of Advent, this last week that we celebrate the arrival of Jesus as a man, we're still excited and expectant, right? Still, we're still leading up to this crescendo, uh, this this mountaintop of what happens a week from this morning. We we have another week of finding it fun to listen to Christmas music or watch Christmas movies or eat Christmas food and buy and wrap presents. Now, this is for traditionists like myself that only do these things between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Some of the young kids today like to listen to Christmas music in the summer for some crazy reason. I know that's shocking and horrible, but they do it. Uh, and then there's like super traditionalists who say we've got it all wrong. The celebration of Christmas doesn't really begin until Christmas Day, and it continues for the 12 days of Christmas leading up to the su- the, sun, the the day of Epiphany on January the 6th. And they, they think we're all uh, getting it getting it wrong. But for the normal people, about a week from right now, everything will be open. And wrapping paper and packaging will be scattered all over the den. And the hustle to get to the grandparents will have commenced. And then it's just kind of all downhill from there. Let's just go ahead and get to the new year and just clean everything up and get life back to normal. At least that's how I think. But until then, it's still exciting and fun. Like there's still something to look forward to. Uh, Like one of our youngsters who thinks that any present under any tree, whether it's fake or real, must be for him. And so he'll ask us, who's that present for? Should I open that? No, it's not even real. It's, It's fake. It's just decoration. But we gather like this on the Lord's Day, and we constantly speak to our kids this reminder, Christmas isn't just about fun and the happy. There's a balancing somberness to what we celebrate. Yes, Jesus does love us so that he was glad to come from heaven to earth to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. But it's because we are so sinful, Jesus had to come from heaven to earth to give his life. The reality of sin in us and our world doesn't make Christmas celebrations sad, but it gives them depth and ultimate joy. Like if, if all someone is celebrating at Christmas is the myth and the magic and the presents received and just this mystical thing, then it really would be a depressing week from now when everything is over. Now what? Oh, well, I guess we get ready for the next party, New Year's Eve. And then we get ready for the next party, Super Bowl Sunday or whatever, whatever comes next. But because we get the true foundation of what we're celebrating, then the party never ends. It continues. I don't know about 12 days and 184 birds and leaping lords of celebration, but the reason for the celebration never ends, and it actually only intensifies as we head into eternity. Like we, we can be the most celebratory people on the face of the earth because we have the ultimate reason to celebrate. We should party like no one else parties because we have the greatest reason to celebrate this ultimate joy and hope that we have in Christ. We are sinful and we need a Savior and God sent His Son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We see this throughout the songs that we sing at this time of the year. This reality of the somberness of Christmas and joy to the world, one entire verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He makes His blessings flow far as the curse is found. In O Holy Night, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners 
reconciled. Why do we need to be reconciled? Because we are rebellious. Come thou, we just saying this, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. We are enslaved to our fears and our sins. And Jesus had to come to set us free. O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. What do we need to be rescued from? From depths of hell your people save and give them victory over the grave. We are sinful and we need a Savior. And God sent his son to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This is what's behind all the celebrations of this season. So, celebrate like crazy this week. Go all out. Throw parties, attend parties, have parties. Celebrate as families, individuals. Invite people to join you in that celebration. But preach the gospel to yourself behind the celebration. So it's not just fleshy indulgence. Preach the gospel behind the celebrations to your kids. So they don't just see it as, so they see it as more than just surface fun. Preach this gospel so the celebration doesn't end this week, but continues because our celebration is not driven by what songs are playing, what movies or commercials are showing, or how stores are decorated. It's driven by our King and our Savior who drives all of our worship. The same theme of sin and rescue is what closes our walk through the book of James. As we have seen throughout the book of James, a very down-to-earth, practical book of commands given to followers of Jesus. They have more commands per verse than any other book of the Bible. We obey these commands as followers of Jesus because we love Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. We love Jesus. We obey his commands. Not only will we obey these commands, but we can only obey these commands because Jesus lives inside of us. So that as we obey these commands, the life and reality of Jesus is put on display in us and through us. Just as Jesus described what life looks like for his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, so James, the brother of Jesus, piggybacks on that famous sermon to help us to see what it looks like to live this life as a follower of Jesus. So with this high view of the importance of actually living out this faith that we claim to hold, it's not surprising that James closes his letter with a non-typical closing of a New Testament letter. None of the usual greetings and farewells, tell so-and-so I said hi type stuff, but action steps. Verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Again, reminding them of this close relationship of family, brothers and sisters. If one of you strays from the truth and one of you turns them back. Now, notice who he's not addressing. He's not talking to those outside of the church, but he's talking to those from inside the church. He's also not addressing any particular person, but he's speaking generally. In other words, it could happen to anyone. And who's responsible to go get them back? Anyone else. We're all responsible. Most of the life of the church is carried out in the community of God's people. Very few aspects of the church life are intended to be done by the two offices of the church, elder, pastor, or deacon. Most of the commands are lived out, carried out by everyone. So this is not uh, someone straying, well, I need to call one of the pastors, elders, to go bring that person back. 
if you notice they're straying, James puts a responsibility on, on you to go after them, to, to, go, to go pursue them, seek them out. I, I used to, when I pastored uh, traditional churches, I would not constantly, but often have someone come and tell me about someone they knew who was lost, not a part of the church, that needed to hear the gospel. So that I would go visit them, and I would share the gospel with them. And I, for a while, I was young. I didn't know any better. I was like, okay, I'd love to do that. I'd love to tell people about Jesus. And then I realized this is not helpful. Why am I the only one who does this? I need to train and equip you to go share the gospel with the person you already know. You're already in relationship with them. I shouldn't be doing this for you. You should be doing this. But certainly I want to help. And so it's the body. It's, this is empowering the body to be the body. If you think you notice a brother or sister straying from the truth, it's our responsibility to go after them. Now, what kind of straying from the truth? Well, the truth is the totality of the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32, then he said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And a few chapters later, he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. So in a way, the truth is the totality of the gospel, the totality of Jesus, who he is and what he's come to do. Wandering from the truth can be both intellectual and doctrinal. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, and their teaching will spread like gangrene, Hymenaeus and Philitus are among you. They have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. It can be intellectual or doctrinal, or wandering from the truth can be moral or behavioral, as we see Jude addressing. Jude 1.4, and Paul does this many times. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ our only Master and Lord. So, that moral or amoral behavior was a denial of Jesus Christ. The way they were living, the sensual living, turning the, the grace of God into sensuality is denying of Jesus. It's a rejection of the truth of who Jesus is. So that's what wandering from the truth looks like. And given the context of verse 20, that this straying, this, this is a straying that unless a person turns back, death is awaiting. This is ongoing, persistent wandering. Wandering that could result in their eventual soul death. Soul meaning not just the immaterial part of who you are, but the totality of who you are as a person. Immaterial and material, physical and non-physical. And this person being turned back will end up saving his soul from that death and covering a multitude of sins. So we have in our mind here, the person who's not turned back ends up with eternal punishment, separation from Christ in a place called hell. And the person who is turned back is experiencing this forgiveness, this salvation, this life. Wait, you might say, I, I thought he was addressing Christians, brothers and sisters. Is, is this passage implying that we can lose salvation? That there's a danger that brothers and sisters could end up in eternal separation from Christ? Well, we know from so many other passages that salvation is a work of God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for instance. By His grace and only by His grace, we repent of our sins, confess, profess our faith in Jesus, and come alive in Christ. This is a work that's initiated by God, accomplished by God, kept by God. We're made alive in Christ, Ephesians 2 tells us. 
There's no aspect of our salvation we can take credit for. It's his work. Yes, from our perspective, we have decided to trust in and follow Jesus. And those choices are real. We're not robots. But once we're in the family, we realize all along, it was really more the work of God than us. He is the ultimate determiner, not us. He gives the grace, so he gets the glory. No one will boast about themselves in the throne room of heaven. No one will beat their chest in the presence of God. Look what I've done. This is what makes salvation secure, because it's his work accomplished through the perfect work of Christ. So many passages, Philippians 1.6, I am sure that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.8, he will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 1.24, now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. Romans 8.30, the golden chain, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. You can't break the chain. So we know that salvation is secure because it is kept by God in Christ. Nothing can separate from the love of Christ, Romans 8. No one can pluck you from his hand, John chapter 10. On and on we could go. But the New Testament is also clear. Not all who profess faith in Jesus and are part of the visible followers of Jesus are actually genuine followers, are genuine believers. Someone can outwardly profess faith in Jesus, but not really be a follower of Jesus. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. Matthew 7, probably the clearest verse on this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Like if, you, if you feel some heaviness and trepidation and some some like check in your soul, that, that's an appropriate response to that. This is, this is something we sh- that should cause all of us to sit up and take notice. Like, oh my goodness, I, I can't assume my salvation? No, you shouldn't assume your salvation. You should examine your salvation. But don't assume that you're saved just because you go to church or just because your parents went to church or just because of all these other things you've done. You should examine it, 2 Corinthians 13 tells us. The final proof of who is a genuine brother or sister is not a profession of faith. A lot of people have that. But a perseverance of faith. Perseverance of faith. This is where assurance comes from. When we're walking in disobedience, we lose the joy of assurance. We don't feel like we're a Christian anymore because we're not following Jesus. We're chasing after sin. Assurance comes through obedience, through being reminded that this is what Christ has done for you. So the final proof is not a profession of faith, but a perseverance of faith, which is ultimately accomplished by God. But the means of that perseverance is the community of believers he's given to us, so that when we wander, he comes after us. He is the hound of heaven who chases us down to bring us back 
And he does that through us, each other, brothers and sisters. And by his grace, if we are his, we will turn back, thus proving our faith is actually real. But if someone who professes faith in Jesus never turns back, then they will fall into that group described by John in 1 John 2. They went out because they were never really apart. You see a similar importance placed in the body of Christ in this task and uh, this task and perseverance in Hebrews 3, but encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly into the end the reality that we had at the start. We are a part of this for each other. One pastor sums this doctrine of eternal security up like this. Five, five statements. Number one, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. Number two, those who are justified will certainly be glorified. Salvation will be completed. Number three, no one will be glorified or finally saved who does not continue in the faith. Number four, God himself will keep his children from finally falling away. And number five, God keeps his children by means of his children. Part of how he keeps us is through each other, encouraging each other, holding each other accountable, pursuing one another, chasing after one another. In one sense, this gives us great peace, and in one sense, it gives us a very high view of this community called the local church, the fact that we need each other. We are all prone to stray and wander in small ways and maybe big ways. And God has designed this to work in such a way that we need each other and we help each other. James isn't the only one who writes about this. Galatians 6.1, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Now notice in both Galatians 6 and James 5, the goal isn't condemnation or punishment, but restoration. The goal is to bring them back, not banish them away because they failed. They didn't do it like you thought they should do it. They didn't measure up. They struggle. We, we restore, Paul says in, in Galatians 6, with a gentle spirit. If you see a brother or sister growing in coldness to the things of God, if you see a brother or sister in a pattern of spiritual indifference, moving away in fellowship, moving their life away from healthy Christian community, habitually embracing sin, justifying sin, with such a degree of severity that if they continue on that path, it would result in them no longer living or experiencing life as a Christian. Then you go after them. You pursue them in a gentle spirit with love. This isn't referring to believers who have various opinions on areas where we can differ in opinion. Which version of the Bible, how the end times will play out, how the gifts of the Spirit operate in the local church, Calvinism, Arminianism, how Christians should vote, which political party they should join, how they should educate their kids. Tons of things we divide on and we make more ultimate than they really are and cause us to break fellowship with each other. That's not what this is talking about. This is someone who is walking away from Jesus to embrace clearly false doctrine that denies the gospel and the work of Jesus or embraces sin and rebellion to such a degree they are clearly in danger of missing out on salvation. A real Christian will not lose out on salvation. 
Tim Keller says that genuine salvation is like a boat ride to heaven. You may fall on the boat and break some bones and spend some time in the infirmary, but the boat's still going to get there. This going after someone who's wandering is either helping a real Christian spend less time in the infirmary, suffer less consequences for their foolish embrace of sin, or you help someone who doesn't yet have genuine salvation find it. I, I never really believed. I was just relieved. This is, this is huge in our area, huge in the Bible Belt South. The vast majority of people proclaim to be Christians but no one really thinks that all these people are saved and love Jesus and follow Jesus and find their joy in Jesus. And so this pursuing of them as they're embracing sin can help them see they never have truly embraced Jesus. They've never come alive in Christ. So what does this look like practically? Well, obviously it starts with self. We don't, we don't start pointing the finger. We start looking our, in the mirror. This is the, the 28th sermon that we've done from the book of James this year. So let's think through some of what we've walked through as a, as a kind of self-examination. To what degree are we fully, wholeheartedly embracing this truth? Even if we struggle and we fall short of fully implementing, it's, it's still what we want. And to what degree are we, like, tempted in our hearts just to kind of pass? Like, eh, I don't really want, that's optional, right? I, I don't have to do that. These questions, uh, Sam Storms put together a list of questions to help us think through the book of James. And I'll, I'll post these on Workplace. And they could maybe serve as a type of self-assessment for you as a, as a year ends and a new year begins. First, am I becoming more patient in the trials of life as described in James 2? Have the challenges and obstacles and even painful encounters in my life served to make me more dependent on God? Have they been used to transform me so that I look and talk and act more like Jesus? Or have allowed trials to create bitterness and anger and resentment inside of me? Second, has my perspective on wealth changed at all? Do I see earthly riches in the same light that God does, as we see in James 2 and James 5? Third, am I dealing with temptation? Or do I toy with it? Do I tinker with it? Do I nibble at it around the edges? Do I treat it flippantly? Or do I vigorously resist and reject and run away from temptation? Fourth, what is my attitude now toward those who are less well-off financially and socially despised? Do I cater to the wealthy at the expense of the poor? Do I still only treat people on the basis of what I think they can do for me? Do I pass judgment on them based on physical, educational, vocational realities? Or on the basis of the fact that they, like me, are created in the image of God and thus of immeasurable value? Fifth, what's up with my speech? James chapter 3. Do people close to me notice any difference in how I use my tongue? Or am I still the same old verbally critical and abusive person I used to be? Sixthly, how am I doing when it comes to humility as described in James 3 and James 4? Seventh, am I living in such a way that people would describe me as a friend of the world or am I a true friend of God? Am I still flirting with the world? Am I carrying on an affair with the world? Have I committed spiritual adultery against God by giving in to the seductive allure of what the world has to offer? Or am I living faithfully in covenant love and affection for God? Number eight, do I still make plans as if I'm ultimately in control of my life? Or do I recognize that my life, as we're told in James 4, is but a vapor, a mist in the wind, here one moment and gone the next? Do I make plans for the future? Submitting to the overall providential will of God or does my will 
reign supreme. Number nine, is my prayer life any different from studying James 5, the passage we looked at uh, last week? Do others come to me asking that I pray for them? If they do, how do I respond? Am I more expectant of what God might do in response to prayer than I used to be? Or is prayer merely a lifeless and meaningless religious ritual that I engage in to impress others? And lastly, do I know of a brother or sister who's wandering from the truth who needs my help? And if I do, what will I do about it? Ignore it? Rationalize doing nothing? Or will I obey James and with humility and tenderness and genuine heartfelt love step in and try and turn them around? In light of that, in light of these last two verses, let's think through a, a few practical applications. First, who are we known to? Who really knows us? Who are we opening up our lives to so they can know us well enough to know if we're wandering? Who are we making ourselves accountable to? Like this is another function of what DNA is supposed to do in our life, DNA groups, brothers with brothers, sisters with sisters, opening their lives up to one another so we can be pursued when we wander and we can be encouraged and affirmed. Part of the reality of this passage is that this wandering can be any of us. Like no one's exempt from this. You don't get to this level of walking with Jesus, this level of maturity where this can't happen to you. It happens to all of us. It's just a matter of the degrees of wandering. So we all need this kind of help and accountability and this need to live with this kind of vulnerability that no one here is above straying from the faith. Like personally at times it feels like this faith I'm holding on to is razor thin. Just hanging by a thread. That thread is incredibly strong. Like the strongest steel you can possibly imagine because it's God who made that thread. It's God who holds on to that thread. But at times it feels very, very weak. And that's probably a lot of us. More often than we, we actually admit to people. We need each other. It's not manly to go it alone. It's foolish. It's not a sign of maturity that you don't need anybody. It's foolish. Are we living in these relationships? And, and secondly, so, so who knows us? Who are we known to? And then secondly, are we living in these relationships with such love and grace and humility that invites people who know us to ask questions and to poke and to prod if they're afraid that we're wondering? Or... Are we so prickly that people who know us best hesitate to ask? Let's live with such grace and humility that we can even turn to the people who know us best and we can ask them, do you have any concerns? Do you see any concerns in my life? Any way that you think I might be wandering from the truth, that my mind and my heart are straying at all? Like just imagine that kind of community living that out. No one falls through the cracks. In love, we pursue and encourage one another to persevere to the end. Jesus came, which we celebrate right now, and gave his life so we could have life now and forever. Not just to taste and nibble on what life, what is life-giving, but, but, but only experience death, but to fully ingest and feast on what is good and life-giving, enjoying him to the fullest. So let's encourage one another to enjoy Jesus to the fullest, to find our ultimate joy in him. And share that joy with others. And when we begin to seem like we're no longer enjoying the feast, then let's go after each other to bring them back. Jesus, thank you so much that this is why you came. To give us this kind of life. Life in you 
life forever, life abundant. Nothing can separate us from this life that we've been given in you. Nothing can separate us from this love we've been given in you. And so we want to enjoy that to the fullest that we can experience in this life. And so help us, help us to do that well. But Father, we also know that we're prone to wander. We know that our hearts are prone to leave this God that I love. And we cry out, take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We know that part of that is each other. So help us to examine ourselves, yes. Help us to be pursued, yes. But also help us to pursue others. And whatever way that looks like for everyone in this room to obey that, to live that out, carry that out, go, go have a conversation with someone, to receive a conversation from someone, Jesus, make it possible so that we, your people, can experience your life inside of us as we obey your commands. That's what we want. We want to be the people of Jesus, living out the commands of Jesus so that Jesus can be seen. If that means salvation for someone here today, then bring it, Lord Jesus, as they confess their sins and trust in Jesus for salvation. In whatever ways it needs to show up, bring that as well. By your grace and for your glory, we pray.